Hello and welcome to the Data Journalism Podcast. My name is Simon Rogers. I'm a data journalist, speaker and teacher and data editor at Google. My name is Alberto Cairo and I am a professor of visualization at the University of Miami, an infographics designer and journalist and also a book author. We love using data to tell stories and the music you can hear is the sound of data made with two-tone and that that turns numbers into tunes. And this is the Data Journalism Podcast, the only podcast, as far as we know, and at least so far, that dissects the latest trends in data journalism around the world. In each episode, we will explore the latest in data journalism, and we will chat with some of the world's top data journalists. You'll get to find out how they do what they do. So subscribe at datajournalismpodcast.com to see how data is changing the world of journalism forever. And ever. Forever and ever. ever. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Simon. Hey, Albert, how are you doing? Doing all right. So who is our guest this week? So our guest this week is Rani Mara, who is the kind of data chief data journalist really at um, Vox and Recode, which is part of part of Vox. And she does a ton of really interesting work around using data to tell stories in a very kind of complementary way. I think of her as like a kind of a model for the time data journalist who has to work on interesting projects and develop her own stories using the data, but then also, you know, be a good writer. She's a great writer. Yeah, she's so a good, good yeah. writer. I'm familiar with her work. And, yeah, I, I, unfortunately, as, as listeners will notice, uh, as soon as the episode begins, they will see that I am not part of the conversation. Definitely, definitely not quieter than normal. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I didn't interject with completely inappropriate comments <laughs> during, the, during the podcast. Well, should we dive in? Let's go. I'm Ronnie Mola. I'm a senior reporter at Vox and Recode, which is um, Vox's tech vertical. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. And tell us a little bit about what you do day to day. What's 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 data journalism mean to you in your kind of daily life? Uh, these days, it means a lot sort of behind the scenes. I'm a, a reporter who's lately been focusing a lot on just the future of work. Um, so I, I kind of let stories and reporting lead the way. Um, but you know, I, I always look for data every time I write an article. I sort of try to back up anecdotes, you know, like see, like, is this actually happening? I never like writing an anecdotal lead. I'm like, I'm the worst about that. My editor is always like, find a human to talk to. And I'm like, I did. I just don't want to include them. I, you know, I, I prefer this like more mega trend thing. Um, so for me, a lot of it is just like a gut check is like, okay, is this thing that I'm hearing from a few people an anecdote or is it actually happening? Is this just, seeming this way to me, or is it happening for everyone else? Um, and then I also, you know, I often do make charts and graphics to go along with my articles, but um, a lot of the time these days, it's, it's just sort of behind the scenes, like gut checking, okay, is this a real thing? And what kind of pieces do you do? Talk through some of your most recent work. Um, lately, I've been writing a lot about remote work or about how people are being laid off at, in tech or, mm-hmm. um, you know, and a lot of this is sort of like the future of work, I guess, is the beat. It it just sort of means like how we work now, especially since there's been so much disruption since the pandemic. You know, a lot of people who used to go to offices are now working from their homes. Um, People who used to have jobs that were like sort of considered like, you know, easy to come by are are being like, how do do I explain this? Uh, There's been a lot of raises in low-income jobs. There's been, Mm. you know, because it's really hard to fill these jobs, people have had a reconsideration about how they feel about work. 
And all of this is sort of like, I, I rely very heavily on the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, they have like, you know, longstanding data sets showing that people are quitting at record rates or, you know, how layoffs are still actually pretty low, even though, you know, you and I are in tech. So we're like, we think the sky is falling, <laughs> but like overall, like everyone else is like, what layoffs? What are you talking about? Um, I, I look at a lot of like company specific data sets. Like I'll reach out to a company and say, Hey, you guys specialize in this. What are you seeing? Like, how much has this gone up? Um, you know, maybe you're a software company who you could see like what share of workers are contract workers. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll ask like, has this gone up lately? Is it just in my head that like everyone's doing contract stuff on the side or is this like actually like a legitimate thing? Um, so mostly I've been just uh, seeing what's happening in the world, which is that there's been a lot of layoffs. I've been talking mm -hmm. to people about their experiences with work, what's been happening, what's changing, thinking a lot about like um, generative AI and how that could impact our jobs. You know, can it write an article for me? Uh, I'm actually reporting on um, people using ChatGPT and the other the other uh, generative AI software to write cover letters and like whether this means like cover letters are sort of meaningless to begin with. Like, should we be writing those at all? If we could, you know, plop in our resume and and this spits out the sort of formulaic template version of of this thing that no one likes doing. Um, so yeah, just trying to stay up to beat with how people are feeling about work, especially in this time, because it's it does still feel so like it's shifting beneath our feet. Yeah, I really, really feel like we first chatted, you know, during covid mm -hmm. and that's i think you know we're still like you know reckoning with the impacts of that and all of our kind of professional lives i mean what are you seeing in the data around the way that covid kind of impacted us long term well you know there's these sort of separate worlds because some people are like it's completely changed my life you know the way i work you know the thing i do for eight hours five days a week um you know i now do it from home i could i have all this flexibility to like Maybe I go on vacation a little bit more and work from from there, or you know, it's made childcare possible for young parents. Like, so there's some people who people in the professional set, people who work at computers, who are like, everything is different. And then you talk to someone who works in a restaurant or someone, you know, a police officer, and they're like, "What are you talking about? <laughs> everything is the same, or maybe worse than it was before." So it's sort of bifurcated. Um, obviously, like. I, I do think it's interesting, the op opportunity for change, the opportunity for things to be a little different and better. You know, that's like the optimistic side of me. But like, I also have that other part of me that's like, okay, okay, it's just, it's just people like me who get to work, at, you know, who have the opportunity and the privilege to do this, who are like, really enjoying it. And now who are really pissed off that some places are asking them to come back to the office. Hmm. But like, I, I think, you know, you have to hear I think it could be, could be both things because if you talk to people who do have to go into a place, they're like, of course, I would like to not do that. You know, mm. like, why wouldn't you take that opportunity if, you know, um, there are even a few examples I've seen of like uh, retail companies, you know, where you would work as a customer sales representative or, you know, you would at a checkout line, giving those people, I think it's Neiman Marcus, gives them the opportunity to do like customer service online from home one or two days a week. So I think that's sort of interesting where there are those possibilities for change. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about that kind of return to work. It's obviously something you'll be working on a lot recently. I mean, what kind of data can you mm -hmm. really use that's useful here? Mm -hmm. Because obviously a lot of the data 
public data is old, isn't it, by the time that we get it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is... How do you you deal with that? Yeah, it's funny. There is this long-standing data set from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that I talked about even before the pandemic. It was like, um, you know, trying to figure out how many people worked remotely because it was a trend before then, right? You know, this Mm. was very possible before COVID-19, you know, brought the world to a standstill. It was just sort of people didn't do it. And this Bureau of Labor Statistics data is so flawed because it asks people... Um, like if, if for your full-time job, you telecommute, which is a weird word to use, um, more than two or three days a week. I forget what it is. I, I always have to pull it up, but it's like, it doesn't actually record people who maybe work remotely a few days a week from home or people who don't know what the word telecommute means or, um, mm. you know, so it, it doesn't really, I just remember that that data set never really captured things. Now, a lot of people look at like the castle data set, which is a key card company. It has some flaws too, because I think it it hues a little bit more towards like, what is it? It might not have as much finance or lawyers or, or something like that. So it might be like sort of industry, more industry specific, but generally that shows that like 50% of like office occupancy is about like half of what it used to be. Mm-hmm. So it, it, and then when you compare that to other industries, you know, you look at people have gone back to office, sorry, have gone back to the movies, have gone back to restaurants, have gone back to the airplanes, they've gone back to like everything else. You see, sort of see that like, okay, this is something that's staying. Mm. Um, even if, you know, there are so many edge cases, obviously plenty of companies are calling people back. So I'm always looking for data sets about that. There's a really longstanding one by um, a really good one, which is survey data, you know, obviously asking people, do you do X? But it's a, the, the words are, the, the wording is good. And that's by, um, uh, Stanford University professor Nicholas Bloom and a few other people. I think there's U Chicago and um, a few other universities that uh, it's called uh, work from home research. Uh, so you can sort of see that remote work is staying and it's staying in a hybrid sense. Uh, most people come into the office some of the time, but they're still working from home some of the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those are the main data sets I rely on, but there are, there are other ones out there. It's just, you know, the survey ones could sort of be tricky. So I like the, the you know the Stanford University one they've they've worded it well. I think this is interesting because one of the misconceptions people have about data journalism is you guess like yeah a data set it just like emerges like magic <laughs> and then yeah. that gives you everything you need to write a story you don't uh-huh. do any like actual journalism but what right. you're doing is actual journalism isn't it because you're you're speaking to people you're accumulating things that all complement each other and tell a story collectively but then might not do individually right i mean i think it's obviously like most important to to talk to human beings like you know um every time i i I put out a chart out there you know a man on the internet says to me well correlation correlation is not causation i was like yes i too remember that sentence from like my first day of like there's always a man on the internet there's always a man on the internet and i'm like but sometimes you know (laughs) causation is causation and you know sometimes like when you talk, when you go through and you have this chart and you figured out or the data set and you figure out, okay, this is the, these are its downsides. These are what's wrong. This is what's wrong with it. This is what's right with it. And I talked to all these experts or all these people who work in the field. Yes, this thing is causing this thing. <laughs> like, mm. you know, so um, it, it, it obviously like you can't just put a chart with two lines crossing and saying, this is the be all end all. But once you've done all the reporting and you've talked to people and, you know, you do your best at trying to figure out what something is. And a lot of times, like, I feel like my pieces are just filled with caveats. They're like, okay, well, here's the problem with this thing. And this is a good thing, but, 
you know, but it doesn't include these people or the survey mm -hmm. was of people who are mostly online. So they're probably higher income. You know, there's just always so much to consider. It's never going to be like definitive. It's, it's in a lot of ways, I feel like it's an apology tour. <laughs> you know, it's just me writing like, here are the short, shortfalls, but this is, I'm doing my best. And how often do you get like statisticians like challenging, challenging your work or, or coming to you and saying, actually, or, or being thrilled that you've explained something with their data that they weren't expecting? I mean, I, I get people who challenge me all the time. It usually is just a guy on the internet, though. So I feel like yeah. generally, like it stands up. Like I, I don't like you know, if a if a statistician comes up to me and is like, "Hey, I've done all this research on this, and you're wrong," then I interview that person next time, yeah. and yeah. like I get right. <laughs> you know, I, I try to figure out the difference there. Like, you know, that wouldn't sit well with me. Like, I would yeah. want to figure out, like, okay, what did I do wrong? You know, like it's it's a work in progress. It's me trying to figure out answers to questions on the fly, um, but you know. I think my work generally holds up. I've been wrong. Like, I, what did I say? I wrote a piece early in the pandemic. This was like March, 2020. I was like very pregnant and very at home and very like out of my mind. I writing this piece about how office, offices were going to be completely different and like everything would be non-touch. And, you know, there would be all this like voice activated everything when you went into an office. First off, missing the point that maybe you wouldn't ever go back to an office. Second off being like, not realizing like that costs so much money. Like who's going to do this? You know, inertia means that we're going to do like the least possible. And someone at the time pointed that out. They're like, yeah, sure. This, <laughs> sure. People are going to spend all this money on this. So I've been you know very wrong before, but also that was like, that was the times I, I was just speculating at early in the pandemic and was wrong. One of the things about COVID I think is really interesting is how it's kind of almost like a high point for people wanting, demanding almost like data about mm. this thing that they don't understand what's going on. It's like this big mystery. Data can kind of provide a bit of certainty to that. And then, you know, accessing it, you've got Johns Hopkins and all these dashboards. Mm -hmm. and, you know, oh, God, I remember uh, that. I, I remember learning that, how to use that dashboard and yeah. how to use that GitHub. Oh, my God. Yes. Uh -huh. Right. So, so I mean, but how, so what was the long-term effect of that? Do you think people still want that much data or still care? Is there, or are people just like glad to say goodbye to the data, most of them, and rely on you <laughs> to explain it for them? Um, well, I mean, obviously under times of duress, like when there's an information void, there's always like the demand. Yeah. You're like, you're searching for the next thing to come out. I remember, you know, looking for any little incremental change about COVID, what was happening, where it was. I think that just speaks to how incredible that time was. Mm. Like, you know, we didn't know anything. They're just like all the forces collided. We didn't know anything. There wasn't a lot of information to be had. So like every incremental thing was super important. Um, you know, this is when people were like, when next thing they're like groceries, you know, like we were trying, people were trying. Um, so I don't know that it's like, people are like, data is not important now, as much as like, there isn't as acute a need for their like, you know, their bodily safety. So like, in a way, maybe it's a good thing. They're like, we're a little more relaxed, but like, you know, it was cool. It was kind of cool that everyone was like, look trying to doing their best to sort of learn okay like this is what this means like everyone's like an armchair epidemiologist for, mm. good, or, for good or bad you know like has opinions on like which vaccine is better etc but like and, you know it's good to want to know stuff but um maybe also good that we're not like so desperately in need of that information at the moment so tell me a little bit about how you got into this field like in the first uh, place what was your introduction to data and journalism um, so i was working at a alt weekly in santa fe new mexico um i was the culture editor there and 
we had a really cool editor, Julia Goldberg, who was always trying to make us do things like, she was like, what's the coolest way we could show this? You know, she was always trying to visually do stuff that was really interesting and like making us think about, you know, writing things beyond like an 800 word article and like how to make it cooler, visually more appealing. Um, so she was always kind of pressing us to do that. Um, and I think like that was even like in a, a brainstorm every once in a while to like, how could we do this differently? Um, and I think at some some point in that, I was introduced to like the New York Magazine, like approval matrix. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like highbrow, lowbrow. I forget the other two. It's like it, they place things arbitrarily on this like four sided thing. It's like from highbrow to lowbrow, from good to bad. It's, it's not good to bad, but something else. And it was just sort of a funny way to sort of orient information to be like, okay, this thing happens happened. This was highbrow. This thing, you know, this was actually evil or whatever. <laughs> um, and I, I just thought that was fun. And at the same time, I was, I've always been really attracted to visuals, to things like that. Been good at math. That helps, you know, st statistics like has always been appealing to me. So when I went to Columbia for grad school, you know, I, I graduated in 2008 during the, uh, you know, the Great Recession. I was, I barely got this job at the Alt Weekly. I was trying to make myself a little more um, recession proof. You know, I think that's a pretty common of people in my my sort of um, the crew graduated around that time. We were all of a sudden like, wait, it's hard to find a job. This sucks. Why did I do all that stuff? Um, one of the majors there, one of the w w areas you could uh, specialize in was data journalism. So I just having had that little like that taste of it, like what this could sort of look like and be fun. And like I, I find this appealing. I like maps. Um, I just went and learned how to do it a little better. Hmm. And one of the things I, I think about your work that's so interesting is that often you're telling me things that are, that are kind of unexpected and they're kind of against the common perception. Like, so for instance, you did a piece recently about how people are actually moving back to San Francisco when we keep being told that people are leaving or that, you know, uh, to be decided whether when the full date exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> but it's like it's kind, of, it's kind of unexpected. I often yeah. feel about your work, you're finding things that, that I'm not going to find elsewhere. And is that, because you have the data that helps you do those kind of stories, but otherwise it would just be your kind of perceptions. I don't know. Sometimes I think of it as like, you know, a news story is only news if it's new, right? Um, yeah. So it's like, I wouldn't share a chart that was sort of a straight line. I like, I would share a chart when the two lines crossed or when something popped up a bit. So it's like, in a way that's like the visual equivalent to me of being like, actually something is different now or actually mm. something changed or, um, you know, that is a sweet spot in a story when you're like, actually, this prevailing wisdom is wrong. Um, you know, I get to be the well actually guy there for a second. That's fun. But, um, you know, it, it's just like anything else. It's like, here is a new thing that's happening. So here is news. I, I think it just sort of passes that editorial threshold of like, oh, this is interesting. Hmm. And so, I, you know, I try to make my work interesting. So sometimes like the the less interesting stuff just didn't get published, ends up on the cutting room floor. <laughs> And tell, tell us a little bit about um, what that means for you, like being a, a Recode. Like, is there a, what's the approach the Recode has that's so different to other publications when it comes to these kind of stories? I think for Recode and for me and for Vox in general, there's a lot of the sort of hidden in plain sight stuff, stuff that might be like, okay, if I'm super expert in labor economics and I'm following the BLS trends every month, like I know that this it ticked up this much and this means this much. I think of it sometimes as a stepping back for normal people, like of like, okay, all right, what does this actually mean for me? Like, it, is it, um, how do I want to put this? Like, 
But just normally, everybody assumes everybody knows everything. Yeah. Like for a... most of us, right, right, we've got lives, we're doing other stuff, you know, we're not all, all immersed in the news constantly. Right. It just takes one step back and says, okay, like, what's really at stake here? How big is this? Like, do we really, like, does everyone know what this thing is? Like, and, and you know, it can be a little, uh, what's the word? It's hard to do sometimes because I'm like, oh man, that reporter might think I'm stupid because I'm stepping back and being like, okay, this is like, let me make this a little more basic and like actually question these premises a little bit. Let me like, let me say, okay, what do normal people think? And what do I think? You know, realistically, as you said, we're all busy. We're all, we all miss stuff. I was just on vacation. Like I come back and, you know, the world is a different place in two weeks or whatever. Like, it's always nice to sort of question the thing that we think everyone knows, because sometimes that's wrong too. You know, mm. sometimes we get so immersed in something that we can't, like, you know, see the forest for the trees. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. So if you were um, being approached by, like, a, a younger journalist now, somebody at the beginning of the career, or even somebody who's mm. been doing this for a long time wants to change and get into your field, like, what would your advice be? How would you advise them to begin? Oh, um, one thing I always tell, like, every time I speak to students or something, I'm just like, there you know, and maybe this is part of it. When I went back to grad school and I wanted to be like a little recession proof, I was like, how do I do something? Give me a skill set that no one else has. And in doing so, it could sound a little daunting, right? Okay. This is like something that involves coding. This revol involves like, you know, like a lot of statistics. This involves like something that's too smart and too scary. The thing is, it's not too smart and too scary. It's all just like, it's a little bit of work. It's like, okay, you know, if you want to go get back in shape. You have to go for a run every day. It sucks, but totally possible. Um, I, I think about that with like, with data journalism, it's like, okay, you could find a new software. If you like the charts that data wrapper makes, for example, you can figure out how to use that software or, you know, it doesn't have to be, you don't need to go back to like get a computer science degree, or you don't have to go get a degree in statistics. You just have to kind of look things up and ask people and, you know, somehow sometimes appear incredibly vulnerable and be like, I can't figure out why, you know, Google Sheets isn't reading this as a number or even knowing that what's happening. Like I remember really early on, I like, I asked someone who was a data journalist who was way smarter than me. I was like, what's happening? I can't make a chart, blah, blah, blah. Like I'm in Excel or Google Sheets or whatever I was in. And he pointed out to me that like, it was reading my, um, my dates as like a number or something like that. And I didn't even know that existed. I was like, what, what is happening? And then like, from then on, I was like, oh, you know, sometimes it's, it's it's a it's a software that like if you put numbers in this way it reads it as a date or vice versa, and like it was nice because he was he was super nice about it. He was like, oh, this is what's happening, mm. and then from then on it was just a little problem I had to get past. Um, so I, I just think it's totally possible, and especially now that there's so much different software that means that like you can make nice looking stuff without having to, you know, you know you don't have to be the best designer in the world to make a nice looking chart. Um, it's it's possible. It just takes a little work. It's funny, isn't it? It's like, you know, there are no dumb questions in data journalism, but also you can ask any data journalist most time and something which you might think is dumb and they'll be really nice and they'll help you. And yeah. it's very collegiate field. I'm not, I've not found that elsewhere. It's something special about us, I think. It is something special about us. It's probably because like, it's so humbling. Just like you've probably run into stuff where you've been like, oh, this is what's happening, you know, and, and like, like, hopefully you come into it and hopefully it's not some guy on Twitter pointing it out to you, but it sometimes is. So it's incredibly humbling to you or when you're like, I don't know, has ever anyone ever sent you like a 
an image file of data. And then you're sitting there like, I have a graduate degree and I'm typing in this Im image into a data Excel spreadsheet. Like, you know, like it's a humbling field. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we have a couple of pop quiz questions for you. And um, I'm just gonna choose at random. So if you could keep just one of the tools that you commonly use, what would it be? Oh, um, I love data wrapper. <laughs> um, I probably would say like, on a more basic level, I'd say like Excel or Google, um, whatever the equivalent is, like I, I use them interchangeably just because I uh, it just for like the basic put in the numbers, I, I you know, I make a chart. But like, I really love data wrapper. I think it, it's been smart for the past decade. It looks good. Like, it's just easy. It works on all platforms. Like, yeah, that, that's my tool. It's built by the community. That's why it works. I really think that. And they respond to you when you have questions yeah, that are, yeah, that are done. Yeah. <laughs> so shout out to the data wrap team. They are amazing. Okay. What's your favorite hack that you are too embarrassed to admit? Oh, God, I have so many. of. I'm going to come up with a better one later. But often, like, my favorite hack is to just quickly drop something into, uh, I'll, I'll just highlight the highlight the data in Excel and make the chart, you know, hit chart. Yeah. And see what see what pops out. And then, like, you know, like, no this is just for me. It could, you know, this is like when you're cooking for yourself, you throw the stems of the broccoli in, you know, it doesn't have to look nice. So that, that's, that, that's for me. Just like, I just very quickly hit, hit the chart button and see what it looks like. Okay. Last one, pie charts or tree maps. Oh, tree maps. I think, wait, hmm. Yeah. Tree maps. You said, you, your, gut, your, gut said, your gut said tree maps. My right? gut said tree maps just because I have like this deep gut loathing of pie charts. And, you know, and pie charts could be totally fine. It's just like, you know, they've been so abused that people are putting like 50 things in it and making it 3D, but but no one does that anymore, right? So yeah, maybe, maybe they've gotten good. Like they can be good. So yeah, tree maps, absolutely. Great. Ronnie, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs>